We're excited about what God's doing here. We're excited. Two weeks from tonight, we will have the Thanksgiving feast. You need to invite a friend. You need to understand our Thanksgiving feast has the Korean church, the Mian church, the Mandarin church, uh, the English-speaking church. So you can come and have turkey and egg rolls, turkey and egg uh, foo young. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a crazy deal. They make all kinds of specialty dishes, and it's a lot of fun. So we hope you'll be with us. Uh, that's a great outreach. Last year we had about 550 people here for a thir- uh, Thanksgiving dinner. So we would love for you to come. We would love for you to bring someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ on that night as well. Uh, follower, a passionate pursuit. As, as you know, many times I, I came up with this title and I told my wife I, I used this title and I wasn't going to give credit and I need to. Uh, there's a book called Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman. And he used this, this title, and I love that, A Passionate Pursuit. But what I do a lot of times is just type it into Google to see what pops up. Sometimes that's a dangerous thing. And there's a, there's a passionate pursuit. It's a Bible study for married women about sex within marriage. So I thought I would go there. Actually, I'm not. That's, uh, that's from Moody Press. That's for a whole different, uh, whole different discussion. But I thought that was, that was quite different. And then when you type in A Passionate Pursuit... It comes up with the uh, Lexus homepage for the Lexus cars, and that's their slogan, a passionate pursuit, and they, they make no bones about it on their homepage that their desire is to be the very best car in the world. They have this passionate pursuit one day to be more considered higher and better than BMW or Mercedes or any other car, uh, and, and I think that's interesting. If you typed passionate pursuit into your life, what would come up? Is it your goal to be in a passionate, passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ in your relationship with him? Because we're talking about being a follower. And you say, well, Pastor, you, you, you get these dramatic things going on. No, this is, this is reality. What does God want us to do with our life? Uh, Psalm 63, 8. Look at what it says here. The psalmist is writing. He says, my soul clings to you. My right hand upholds me. And I can't help it, but when I think of that, we, I've talked before, we've, we, we have two little dogs, and both of them were abused. They, they were the, the dogs that nobody else wanted. And Buddy, the older and the, the bigger and the white dog, he's afraid of everything. I, I mean, if, you, if, if, I, if there's a sudden movement, a sudden noise, whatever, he, he just shies away. He's so terrified. We've had him for five years, and he's still afraid of everything. But Bo, the little black dog, who's the younger of the two, and even though he's smaller and younger, he's the alpha dog, he has taken control of the house. When we take him in to be groomed, and he has to, he's half poodle and half shih tzu, and so he's groomed all the time. When we take him in to groom him, he, he, he thinks maybe he's being abandoned again. And so every time we get him back, it's the same thing. As soon as you get him back, if I sit down, he's in my lap and he's cuddling with me. If you lie down on the bed, he's, he, he's not just on the bed. He is plastered against your side. My soul clings to you. And, and this dog still, even though we've had him three or four years, this dog still has this need to know that he's still loved. And he has this passionate pursuit of, of, and it's interesting because every morning he gets fed. Every day he's, he's well cared for. In fact, he's spoiled rotten. And the Lord has spoiled us rotten, and yet he, he wonders sometimes if we have that kind of passionate pursuit or we like Buddy that every time God moves, we shy away because we don't know for sure what he's going to do. 
And God, I think that breaks his heart. We've done everything that we can think of with this dog who is afraid of us to try to, to take away that fear and to let him know he's loved and cared for. And yet there's something deeply ingrained. And so many people who say they're followers of Christ act as if God is going to smack them every time he comes around. And I, what we're looking at today is God's passionate pursuit of me should result in my passionate pursuit of him and his life and his goodness and, and all of the things that he wants to build into me. So let's look at this, and we're going to look at a very simple passage. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have your Bible, that's why God made uh, smartphones. You can look it up. Um, I understand. Look it up. There's an app for it. You can find it. Matthew chapter 22. It, it, I give you my permission. Uh, and if the NFL immediately comes up, then that's a whole different thing. We'll get into that later. Matthew 22. We're going to look at verse 34, verses 34 through 38. This is a very well-known passage. But I wanted to, to visit this again because we need to ask the question, where does my passion originate? Because sometimes we think we have to somehow squeeze out more passion, that it's something that, that we have to manufacture. And, and the Bible tells us just the opposite of that. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. And it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, two groups, Sadducees, Pharisees. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees inherited their position, inherited their wealth, inherited their all of this other. And so they were kind of the elite. They were the creme de la creme. The Pharisees were the guys who had to work hard for it. They, and, and so the Sadducees got knocked down by Jesus. Jesus had silenced them. They, the Sadducees sent one of their guys up to try to knock Jesus off the pedestal, and it didn't work. So it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Doesn't that sound like a party? The, the, the Pharisees got together. I, I, as soon as I read that, I thought, there's trouble brewing. And sure enough, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He's talking about the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. Everybody knows Moses went up to the mount, remember, and he got how many... How many laws? 613, that's right. He got 10 of them on two stones, but actually 613 commandments. He got the 10 that were written by God's finger on stone, but 613 commands. And this guy's coming thinking with 613, no matter what Jesus says, somebody's not going to like it. So this is the test. He's trying to trip him up. Look at verse 37. And Jesus replied... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What's interesting is he doesn't go to any of the 613 commands. He goes to what they call the Shema, the Shema. The Shema or the Shema is what the Jews, the good Jews, would recite in the morning and the evening. Hear, O Israel, know that there is one God, one Lord over all. And then they would say, love the Lord your God. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And so he goes to something that, that is outside of what they thought that he would give. And, it, and he shows us where our love, where our passionate pursuit, where our passion originates. And, and I want to just ask you two questions along with this. Number one, how do I fill my mind with truth? Because he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your, and your mind. 
In other places, it's going to talk about strength, and because that, that's because we're looking at a, a Hebrew concept versus a Greek concept. And, and in the Greek concept, you would say your, your heart and your strength and your mind, or, or your heart and your soul and your strength. And so it, it, they're using a little different terminology, but he's, he's asking you and he's asking us to love him, to love him with all of our, with, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And so my question to you is, what's your plan? How do you fill your mind with truth so that you can find that passion? And, and Paul explains in, in Acts that this whole thing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when the Sadducees fall, the, the Pharisees are like, yeah, he got them. And when the Pharisees, they, they trip up, then the Sadducees are going, yeah. But the only time they got together is when they wanted to kill Jesus. The only time that we find that they were really unified is when it came to making sure that Jesus is, is crucified. And so the Pharisees weren't really all that upset, but they, they bring their nomikos, that's the Greek word, it, it's an expert in the law. It's, there's a grammateos, is a scribe, and they don't bring that, they bring the nomikos, he's the one who knows the word, he's the one who is an expert in the law, he is the partner in the law firm. He's not just the, the guy who's doing the research, this is the guy who knows it inside and out, this is the guy that you bring out, the scholarly theologian, and, and he's going to try to trip up Jesus. He wants to find a fundamental flaw in what Jesus has been saying. I, 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 because I was sick the last two days, I don't normally do this. I basically set for two days. You don't know how hard this is. Pray for Kathy, my wife. Uh, you know, it wasn't a man cold. It was a raging infection that I let go too far in my sinuses and went to my ears. And so the doctor basically said, go home and sit down and don't do anything. And I don't usually follow doctor's directions, but I did this particular time, and I'm on the antibiotics, and I was sitting there, and I watched too much TV, way too much HGTV. We have 17 projects for the house. Kathy doesn't know about them yet. I've listed them all. But as I was watching HGTV, I, th there was this house inspector who came, and he was inspecting the house that someone was going to buy, and he found all these things, and they said, we didn't want you to find the flaws. You're buying a house, and you're paying an inspector, and you didn't want to find the flaws. And he said, that's all I do is find the flaws. And, and, and the Lord says that we can examine all of his word and all of his love and all of his grace because there are no flaws. And Jesus just dumbfounded them. And later, Jesus turns this around, by the way, if you wanted to read later in the chapter, because after they've had their fun and then they realize that they're silenced, he says to them, by the way, who is the Messiah supposed to come from? They said, well, from David. He's the son of David. Then he says, well, if he's supposed to be the son of David, how did he say, the, I, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So if it's the son of David, how come David called him Lord? And they're all going, wow, we don't have an answer to that one. Because the son should never be greater than the father in their mind. He blew them out of the water. You, you see, we can get into these little tricks of the mind. And God says, stop playing tricks and just look at this. The essence of the law was to love God. We think the Old Testament was different from the New Testament because in the Old Testament you had to earn your salvation and in the New Testament it was all about law and grace. And Jesus turns this all upside down and he says the Old Testament was the same as the New Testament. The whole essence of all of this is love me. 
Trust me. Believe in me. Follow me. And they didn't know what to do with this. And sometimes we don't either. And he says, I want you to love. This is an agape love. This is a selfless love, a selfless love. This is a love that pays attention. This is, this is a love that's, that's tied to truth. In John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. If you love me, you'll obey me. And to follow requires faith, and faith is based on truth. And, and, and all of this fundamentally comes back to what do you know about God and what do you love about God? And you can't obey what you don't know. In, in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, look at what it says. To the Jews who had believed in him. Again, so these are followers, they're believers. To the Jews who, who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We, we sometimes shy away from the truth because we don't want to know it. And my question comes back, how are you filling your mind with truth? How do you read God's word? How do you read this? This is God's love letter to us. This is God's revelation to us about how much he loves us and how we can love him. How do you read his word? Do you read it while, while you're distracted by something else? Do you read it only on Sunday mornings? The, do, do you only read it because you have the, the Indeed devotional or some other devotional and, and it points you to a place? Or do you read it like it's something vital to you? If, God, if this is God's revelation of his love to us, don't you think we should read the whole thing? And yet, I mean, I read time after time, 90% of Christians today in America have never read through the Bible. How do you read God's Word? Philippians chapter 4 says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's any excellence, if there's any, if, if there's any praiseworthiness in this, Think on these things. Well, how do you memorize God's word? Uh, you, you're not just reading it, but do you memorize it? Do you, do you hide it down deep where when you really need it, it's there? And you say, you know, Pastor, you just don't understand. I'm old and I can't memorize. Well, first of all, in the same book that says whatever is, you know, think on these things, Philippians chapter 4, in verse 13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can ask the Lord to help you remember the things that you read. You can, you can actually write them out on cards. I find out uh, people have said to me, man, you have a great memory for names if they only knew. I mean, I, I come from a long line. M my mom struggling with her memory right now. She's going to be 88 here in, in another month. But she struggled with her memory. I didn't know my name until I was 12. I thought I was Ralph, Tom, Jim, George. She just went down until she actually hit my name. I, I was one of five boys, and then there was a girl. I was pretty sure I wasn't Susan, but the other five, it was up for grabs any day. And so what I have learned is my trick is if I write it down, I remember it. And so I, I write all the time. I have notes everywhere. And, and if you give me your name, you might see me flip over, open the back of my Bible, and I'll find a piece of white paper somewhere, and I'll jot your name down. Because if I jot your name down, I'll remember it. If I don't jot it down, I probably won't. I'm not sure what our kids' names are unless I write them down. You say, well, I, you know, I, how do you study God's Word? Do you just do it in an hour a week on Sunday morning? You're bombarded with all of these other things all week long. 
where, where do you come in for that? Not just information, but transformation. Have you ever read anything that really transformed your life? Have you ever studied something that, that just grabbed you so much that it transformed you? God says, I've given you this book to do that. Do you have a passionate, mental pursuit of Jesus Christ? That's where a lot of the passion comes from as you pursue him mentally. But it's more than that because the second question is, how do I feel my affections for Christ? Because the first one, if the first one's what is your plan, the second one's where is your heart? Where is my heart? How do I love? You can't force somebody, and, and yet there are times in the Bible when, it, when God gives us the command, it's an imperative, he says, love me. It's a command. You can't command someone to love, can you? Our, our oldest granddaughter, Ashley, she was 15 years old when she found out that her parents were pregnant. She had been an only child for 15 plus years. She had two reactions. The first one was gross. The second reaction is, I will not babysit and I will never change a diaper for this kid. Boy or girl, doesn't matter. And she said, I'm going to be out of here in a couple of years. I'll just put up with it until I'm gone. And that worked perfectly until the day that Carter was born. And she saw that little boy. And Crystal, her mom, said, would you like to hold Carter? And she held Carter, and tears came to her eyes. And she said, Mom, I don't understand what's happening here. And she spent time with him, and she got to know him, and she sang to him. And now we have all these videos of her singing to him and, and, and these pictures of her holding him. And, and she takes him. We can hardly get a picture of Carter without Ashley being in the picture. Why? Because she spent time with him and she got to know him and she loved him when she really saw who he was. And if you want a passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ, you need to open your eyes and come into the presence of God Almighty and meet your Savior, Jesus Christ. And tears will spring to your eyes and your, your mind will be flooded with emotions that you, and your heart will be flooded with emotions that you couldn't even imagine. How do you feel your affections? Will you talk to him? We can pray to God anytime, 24 hours a day. I, I've been having a hard time sleeping. Some of it's the decongestant, some of it's the medication, some of it's just feeling lousy. And, and so, you know what, at 2 o'clock, God answers just like at you know, 2 a.m., just at, like at 2 p.m. And as some of you who are going through struggles, as I thought of you, I was praying for you at 2 o'clock. And, and it, it's such a great time to talk to the Lord and and. You know, I was just asking him about all kinds of things. You can fall in love with him. You can worship him. You can adore him. That's what you can do. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Ashley found out with Carter that she had to give time she had to literally make herself available to this little boy. And she said, I don't have time in my schedule, but she made time because she loves her little brother. And I, I think you talk to him. I, I think you worship him. I think you give to him. We just finished up Financial Peace University. And the last lesson that Dave Ramsey gives is, on, is, is how we handle our money and how we give to the Lord. And he says, I always say that we give one-tenth. One, one dollar out of every ten dollars goes to the Lord first. And, and in the budget, he always puts it at the top. It's the first thing you fill out. 
And he said when he was a new Christian, he, he thought that God needed his money. That's pretty funny, isn't it, if you think about it? You, you know the old song, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. There's, a whole, there's an old, old chorus. My dad used to sing that to us all the time. God, own, God owns a, the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills, and the sun, and the moon, and the solar system. Everything that's ever been created, God owns. And Dave Ramsey says that if God needed your money, he would take it and you'd just be a greasy spot left. You think about that. God doesn't need your money. God understands that when we give to him, we, we are able to understand, again, it's a clear indication of who we love. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a strange phenomenon that happens about this time of year, and this is what I notice. All of a sudden, I notice parents and grandparents buying kids toys in ways that they don't buy them the rest of the year. All of a sudden, this time of year, I, I mean, Kathy and I have not gotten any, you, you don't have any Christmas gift for me yet at all, right? I don't have anything for Kathy. In fact, that, I could probably say that up to December 23rd, but, but that's a whole different story. But even though we may not be thinking about Christmas gifts for each other, guess what we are thinking about? We already have a Christmas gift for Gabby, one of the grandkids. We already have some other Christmas gifts that we've gotten for the other kids. And Kathy was out yesterday when I was feeling crummy, and she saw something, and she texts me, and there's a picture. She says, what do you think, Gabby? And I said, oh, absolutely, got to do a big uh, pink bow tie on the front or bow on the front of it. You got to do that. I mean, she loves pink. This is great. That's what happens for grandparents. Nobody has to say, hey, grandparents, you're forced to give. What they usually have to say to us grandparents is, you don't give everything every Christmas. The Lord says, do you give? You fuel your love by, by getting busy and by, by giving to the Lord. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You know, Paul is writing those words, and, and he's writing to a church that got bottled up in legalism and, and all about what you had to do. But he could have written it also to the church in Ephesus, because the church in Ephesus has the saddest words in all of the Bible written about the church in Ephesus. You know what they are? In, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, written to the church of the Ephesus, you've lost your first love. It's all about apathy. I mean, you just go through the motions, you just say the words, but you don't actually do it. You, you, you think it, but you don't actually respond to it. You, it's almost there, but it's not really there. And, and you're just going through this whole apathetic thing. And, and the, the remedy for that, in also Revelation 2, is he says, what should we do? Repent and do the things you did at the beginning. Do the things you did at first. Kathy and I have been married for a lot of years. Uh, when, when we first met, we were students at Calvary Bible College, and this was before microwaves. I know that seems impossible for some. We lived, actually, there was no such thing as a microwave when we were first starting out. And, and we, were, we were at Calvary Bible College, and we didn't have a lot of money. And so Kathy came up with the idea. She says, I have a hot pot. It's supposed to be where you can heat up water for tea or for coffee or whatever. But we found out that it, it fit perfectly. A can of soup would fit perfectly in there. And then she came up with a brilliant idea of chili. You could do a can of chili in there, and then you get a bag of Fritos. 
One bag of Fritos and one can of chili. Kathy and I had Frito pies. Ooh. You know, to this day, if I see a Frito pie, I think back about those wonderful times that Kathy and I in the music room were sitting there and sharing a Frito pie. We didn't have anything except each other. The Lord says, if you want to fuel your, your, all of that affection for me, come back to where you don't have anything except God, just him. Where does my passion originate? And the second part is, how is my passion demonstrated? It's not just where it originates, but how is it demonstrated? Go back to Matthew chapter 22. Look at what it says. Right in the middle, I, I stopped right in the middle. Look at what it says in verse 39. He says, this is the first in verse 38. This is the first and greatest commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ooh. If you go to Luke, it, it, there's a follow-up question, well, who's my neighbor? And then the Lord tells a story about a Samaritan, the most hated people in the region. And he says, the Samaritan showed what love is like. But look at verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He said, this finishes up everything. All of the law, all of the prophecy, all of the future, everything that's all about is loving God with your heart and your soul and your mind and loving those other people out there, maybe even the most hated people, like you love yourself. So I want to ask you three more questions. And here's the first one, and you, you're going to wonder how I got this, but here's the question. Who have I led to Jesus? Say the Lord came back this afternoon. Say he came back and called everybody from Reading, everybody from Cross Point Community Church, all of the Christians, and he stood us before him, and he says, you know what, grace was sufficient, and, and Jesus paid it all, and you're coming to heaven, and all of that. And then he says, I want you to get next to the person that you brought with you. Who would you stand next to? Who in your life can you point to that you have led to Jesus Christ? Because he says we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. And if you love yourself, you, you want to get to heaven. You want to know Christ. You want to have this relationship. You want to follow him. And if you really follow him, if you really love him, who else did you tell to bring them to follow with you? I mean, we do it in every other area. And Jesus knew that we would need to demonstrate that love that flows through us. You see, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. In the first century, there was, a, there was 12 disciples. One of them fell away, Judas. They, they put someone else, Matthias, in there. And then on the day of Pentecost, about 120, 150 and then it was 3,000, and then it was 5,000, and, and the church grew without TV, without the printing press, without Facebook, without Twitter, without all of this other stuff. All of a sudden, 150 people exploded on the face of this earth, and the church grew by the thousands. How? Because they told somebody else. Is that a passion for us? Dawson Trotman wrote a little book called Born to Reproduce. I read it many, many years ago. And the premise of this book is, by God's design, he has woven into every follower 
desire to reproduce. And he bases it on the fact that every woman has within her that biological clock, that desire to have a child. And I know there are some women out there who claim that they do not. And we can, we can tease about my cousin Vinny and Marissa Tomei saying, my biological clock is ticking and she's pounding her foot on the front porch and, and all of that funny stuff. But the truth is, every woman deep down inside wants to have a child. That's what was built within her. And I know that because as a pastor from time to time, I have sat in an office and had a couple come to me and they say, we've tried everything to have a child and we cannot have a child. And, and pray for us, pastor. Please pray that God will give us a child. One of the first times that happened was with my good friend Larry Lamb. He was a pastor at the church in Amarillo where I was serving as the music minister and he was the, the young family minister and, and his wife Heather. And we were, we were having a, just kind of a social time and we had a couple of kids already, three kids at the time, and, and we were talking about how much trouble it is and how exhausted we were. And Heather looked me in the eye and she said, I'd give anything to be that exhausted. And I didn't, say, I didn't know, even know what to say. And all of a sudden, tears just streamed from her eyes. And Larry said, we've been to a fertility specialist. They don't know what's going on, but we can't have children. And we're thinking about adopting. And she was just broken. She was just devastated. And they adopted a child. Four months after they adopted the child, she was pregnant. And it happens over and over and over again. But she had that desire to reproduce. And Dawson Trotman says that if we don't have that urgency, that desire to reproduce, maybe we need to go back and, and ask the Lord if we really know him, if he knows us. Because if you're really a believer, you should want to tell somebody. John 1 verses 41 and 42. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. This brother knew his brother didn't know the Lord, and, and he didn't have all the details, he didn't have all the facts, he just said, come, see this one, here's the Messiah, and he went and he dragged him back into his presence. Folks, you know, we can have every class in the world, and this is not about making you feel guilty. That's not what it's all about. I'm just asking the question, who have you told? Who have you led? Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We looked at that at the very first of this. He says, if you follow me, you will fish. But not for fish, you'll fish for men. And I, I just don't think we get that. I, I read a, a, a book this week, uh, don't remember which one it was, but uh, it was a missionary talking to some Muslims, and he led them to Jesus Christ. And they came to him, they said, we know the Messiah, we know Jesus, we understand who he is, and we accept Jesus Christ by faith, and we're turning our back on the Muslim faith and on Islam. We, we're not going to do that anymore. Now what do we do? And he says, you need to tell somebody. And they said, whoever we tell will kill us. He says, go back and make a list of everybody you know that needs to know Jesus Christ. And you pick out the three or four or five people that you think are least likely to kill you, and you tell them. And in 18 months, in 18 months, there were 185 new believers in that, in that little village. And my question is, nobody's going to kill you for telling them about Jesus. So what three or four or five people 
could you write down people that you know, people that you know need to know Jesus Christ, would you write their names down and begin to ask God to use you to tell them? Here's number two. Not only who have I led to Jesus, loving your neighbor that way, but how am I building the church? How am I building the church? Because some of the neighbors are outside the church and some of your neighbors are in the church. You love others as you love yourself. You love your neighbor. Why is fellowship in the church important? I mean, there's a whole movement today that they love God but they, and they love Jesus Christ, but they don't want to come to a church. And, and I think that's not of the Lord. The church is not just one of God's pieces of, of, uh, of, arm, uh, of armor in his whole thing. It's the whole thing. This is the whole plan of God is, I will build my church. He doesn't say, I will build my parachurch. I'm, I'm not against parachurch organizations, but every parachurch organization has come into being because the church didn't do the job they were supposed to do. You understand that? So God says, I will build my church. And what good is fellowship? If it's just a social time, it may not be good. You know, again, my memories of what's happened in, over the last 10 years. I, I, I can remember so many times, and, and I talked about this at Fred McCullough's service. We were out on the south side of the three-story building, and Fred and I were at the third story, and we were putting uh, the, the windows in. We were up on a lift, and it was blazing hot. And I didn't tell the whole story. And, and I said, man, you look hot. And he looked at me, and my face was red. Top of my head was even redder. And he says, if I'm hot, you're melted. And he called down, I think it was Bob uh, Fletcher, somebody says, hey, throw us a couple of waters up. And he threw the couple, we, we threw the water, and he said, drink half of it right now. And I drank half, and he drank half. And then he took the other half and dumped it over my head. And he says, now you do that with the other half of yours. And I dumped it over his head. And we laughed, and we, had, and we were putting in windows in a building. It was 106 or 7 degrees out there. And we were doing God's work. Every time I think about that, I think of when we were putting in the sound system that the Nemean church needed a new sound system because they were having trouble making videos that they were putting on the internet, and, and all of a sudden we had people that were going on our website, and they were coming from China and Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and places where they couldn't get the gospel, and they were getting the Mian gospel through the Mian church messages that Tan was putting on, and so we, we put a new sound system in there, and Bob Fletcher kept going underneath the, the chapel to run these wires, and we were having a short, and, and, and you know, we, we had all these guys involved with it, and Larry and others were trying to find out what was going on with it, and I thought, is this worth all the trouble? And Bob says, if there's one person in Asia that reach, is reached for Jesus Christ because of me going underneath there, it's worth it all. And Steve and Jackie, Rika, exhausted at the fall festival. I mean, you, you could just see the fatigue. And I said to Steve, man, I appreciate you doing this. And he says, you don't understand. We had hundreds of kids here tonight. If one family comes to know Jesus Christ because of what we're doing, it's all worth it. Folks, this is why we do this. In, in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, the, Jesus is coming in. He's, he's coming off the Mount of Olives and he's coming down and, and part of why we get together is corporate worship. And as he's coming down from the Mount of Olives, it's, we call it the triumphal entry. It's on Palm Sunday, and they start throwing the palms down, and, and they start saying, uh, Hosanna, and they start saying things that you only say to a king. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, tell your followers to shut up. 
They, t- they said, tell your followers, don't say those words anymore. Don't say that anymore. And what does Jesus say? If, if, they, if I silence them, the rocks themselves will cry out. And we're singing in the heart of worship this morning. And the angels in heaven are listening to God's children singing. We, we meet together to be mutually accountable, to be under biblical authority, and, and we have all this incredible encouragement that we get when we all come together and we get to do things together that we could never do separately. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, look at what it says. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Any of you ever ridden a horse? Have you ever ridden a horse? You know what a spur is? That's a, such a nice thing to do to a horse, isn't it? You know, I've, I've been told if you really know what you're doing with horses, eventually you get to the point that you don't even have to spur them anymore. But we're a little stubborn. We're more of a mule than a horse. And the Lord says, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more you, as you see the day approaching. I was talking with Preston, the drummer, this morning. Fred's grandson. And I said to Preston, hey, have you been out on Papa's bike yet? And he says, well, Papa took me out on the bike a couple of times and he about killed me. And I said, Preston, your, your grandfather did that to everybody the first time we went out. And he says, no, he, 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 said, he, he said that you always kept up with him and pushed him. And I said, Preston, I want you to know something. I love your grandfather, but that's the only time he ever lied. Because I never push Fred. I don't think so. I, maybe on a flat, maybe if I'm going downhill and he's following me, because of all my weight, I could go faster downhill. But when it was uphill, Fred was always in lead. And I know it was true with, with Larry Tony. It was true with me. It was true with Gary. Every one of us, when we got on a bike, Fred would get us and he would take us to these hills and we would say, Fred, why are you doing this? He says, you can do this. And you know what? Because of his encouragement, we did. And spiritually, you may be facing a hill that you think you can't get to the top. And when you come alongside people in the church, there should be somebody on the sidelines saying, you can do this. You can do this. Just understand what God is doing through you. He will give you the strength. And and they encourage you to get up the hill. Here's the last one. Who have I led to Jesus? How am I building the church? And how am I impacting the world? You know, Pastor, you're sitting in Redding, California. We're sitting here in this church. It's a few hundred people. We're not going to impact the world. That's what Peter thought. That's what James thought. Bartholomew. That's that's what all of these guys thought. They they thought they were not really going to impact the world. But what task did Jesus leave for us to do? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples. We were, we were studying something in Sunday school and looking at participles, and literally what this says, as you are going, there's an assumption that we're already going to be going. And as we are going, make disciples of all nations. Uh, that's the word ethnos, ethnicity, of every people group. Make disciples of every people group, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and then of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And he doesn't leave us to do this on our own. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
There's nearly two billion people on this planet, the best we can figure out. Two different, two billion people, two billion people involved in these people groups who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two billion. I mean, what can a couple hundred people do? Well, first of all, you can pray. If you go to your computer, you can, you can write this down. Operation World, it doesn't cost you anything. You just, you, you subscribe to it and every day it comes up and it tells you a different country, a different people group within that country that you can pray for. And you can begin to pray for God to do something to this people. You can give. In America, only five cents of every hundred dollars given to a church goes to foreign missions. In America, as an average, only five cents of every hundred dollars, not every dollar, every hundred dollars. Here, ten dollars out of every hundred goes toward mission, and most of that goes to foreign missions. And, and we, you know, every time you give a dollar in the offering plate, a dime of that is going toward mission, and, and we love that, and we would love to do more than that. And actually, if you consider the Mian church and what that is, in that sense, it's a mission, it's much more than that. But you can give. And here's, you can pray, and you can give, and here's the last one, you can go. <laughs> you know what, Pastor, I don't travel well. I, you know, I I don't have a lot of money. I can't, you know, I can't get on a plane and do these things. In the end of December, Tony and May are going to be here. And Tony and May work in Southeast Asia. We don't give the name where they are because it's dangerous for them. But Tony and May have been taking people from the States and they've been doing what they call prayer journeys. And they're going into towns where they've never had a, a, a gospel witness. They've never had a church. And they're going into these towns and they... They take motorbikes because it's so far and you have to go through all kinds of stuff. You have to go through mud and, and gunk and stuff. You see, Pastor, I, I could never do that. Can you imagine what it would be like to go into a town where they've never heard about Jesus Christ and now in three of those villages, three of those places, they have one church that's up and running and two more that look like they're going to start at any time with new churches that are birthed because people cared enough to come and walk through the village and pray and love those people. You could go. Short-term mission. And you say, well, I can't go to Southeast Asia. Could you go to Mexico? Could you go to Haiti? We have missionaries. Uh, look at the world map again, and, and we have a couple of names that need to put up there. We, we have people in Asia and, and South Africa and uh, South America and, and Africa, and we have people in Europe, and we have people in, in, in Central America and Mexico. And we, we have people all over the world. Could you go? Well, you know what's interesting is from time to time, I, I will go to Donna and I'll say, we need to go to Costco. And she'll say, well, Pastor, I trust you. I'll give, me, give you a blank check. And I say, no, don't do that, Donna. This is not a good idea. And she says, no, I'll make it out to Costco, and I'll have it signed. And then you just go, and you bring the receipt back. And she gives me a blank check. We're doing something for the Thanksgiving feast. And I always have Gary go with me, and I always make sure that we verify everything. And it's always done very carefully. But it makes me nervous to have this blank check. And what the Lord says is, why don't you just take your life and you sign your name and you hand it over to me as a blank check and let me fill it in. 
Because the truth is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, somebody told you. Somebody had to, somebody had to come over the last 2,000 years since these disciples were given this instruction, and they had to come and they had to grab you and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. You need to know who he is. Come see the Messiah. Come see the Christ. Come see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross in my place and in your place. Come see him. And they brought you along. A few followers made disciples, and those disciples made other disciples. I love what David Platt has to say, and I'm going to close with this. It's two, two paragraphs from his book called Follow Me. This is what he says. So let us be faithful to do the same, the same thing that these disciples did. We are followers of Jesus. We have died to ourselves, and we now live in Christ. He has saved us from our sins and has satisfied our souls. He has transformed our minds with his truth. Is that true? Has your mind been transformed with his truth? He has fulfilled our desires with his joy and conformed our ways to his will. He has joined us together in bodies of believers called local churches for the accomplishment of one all-consuming commission, the declaration of his gospel and the display of his glory to all the peoples of the world. The task involves all of us. No child of God is intended by God to be a sidelined as a spectator in the Great Commission. Every child of God has been invited by God to be on the front lines of the supreme mission in all of history. Now get this. Every disciple of Jesus has been called, loved, created, and saved to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus until the grace of God is enjoyed and the glory of God is exalted among every people group on this planet. And on that day, every disciple of Jesus, every follower of Christ, and every fisher of men will see the Savior's face and behold the Father's splendor in a scene of indescribable beauty and everlasting bliss that will never, ever fade away. And this is how he concludes. This is a call worth dying for. And this is a king worth living for. Would you pray with me? Father, you have done so much. I can't even begin to fathom why you loved us this way. And you kept it so simple. It's all about loving you and loving others. It's all about having a love that permeates everything that we do in our relationship with you, in our love for you, in our living for you, and the way that we react and we live around others. Father, I don't have all the answers, but I want to love you with all of my heart, and my soul, and my strength, and my mind. Father, I want to love every person you put in my path, inside the church and outside the church. Father, I want to give them the greatest message ever, that Jesus Christ died in their place on the cross. Father, I just want to live what you've given me. I want to follow you. Father, there may be some here today who have never done that, 
They've never made that initial step toward Jesus Christ. Or maybe when I ask the questions today, they begin to realize that there isn't anybody that they have loved into the kingdom. Nobody that they've led to you. That they're really not making a difference in the church. They're, they're here, and, and we just praise you for that, Father. But they know they could do so much more. Father, there are people here today, I'm convinced with all of my heart, that you want to use them to make an eternal difference and an impact around the world. And I don't know who they are, but you know who they are. So I pray today, Father, that that person will step forward, that that person will understand, that we all, Father, as we pray and we give and we go, that we're all making a difference and impacting this world for Jesus Christ. It's not because of us, Father. It's all because of you. It's not because of what we've done. It's all because of grace. We just praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing a, a song called The Stand. And as we do that, if you have a spiritual need, come and sit on one of the chairs in the front. We'd love for you to come. We'll pray with you. Just come as we sing. You stood before creation. So oh. 